following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. If you'd uh, take your Bible and turn to 2 Thessalonians this morning, 2 Thessalonians, going to be in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. I'd like to start off by reading the word for you this morning. Friends, hear the word of our almighty God. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we even dive into the text or look at anything in 2 Thessalonians, I want to start off by saying work does not save. There's two types of people in this world. There's those that are trusting in themselves and in their own works as a means of their salvation. And there are those that are trusting in Christ and in him alone and in the gospel of grace. You have two options. Work or Christ. The sad reality is that only one of those actually saves. Work does not save. Doesn't matter how much you pray. Doesn't matter how much you take care of your home or your family. How hard you work when you're in your job. It doesn't matter the efforts that you put in. Work does not save does not matter if you fast for days on end or you give more and more money to the church or to some local charity. Work does not save. Our country has been this large example of where merit does not work. It doesn't matter anymore. 
Merit seems to be this thing that's kind of been thrown out the window. It's like, I was thinking about this, and it's like when you were in high school and you were in your group project, right? You always had the one person who did all the work. You had a couple people that would do some of the work. And then you had the one person who did none of the work. But that person who put all, none of the work in still got their name on the paper and they still got their A, right? That's what our society is doing today. They're saying, well, merit doesn't matter. Work doesn't matter. We don't have to try. Just... As long as we get to the end, we're fine. And the reality is, is that's what we're thinking, except for when it comes to salvation. You ask any person on the, in society today, should people be able to survive without working? And they'd say, yes, most definitely. But then you'd ask them, how does a person get saved? How does a person go to heaven? And they would say, by being a good person, by working hard enough, right? That's the question that we ask. You see this in every evangelism If you ever watch an evangelism video, any story, uh, evangelism explosion, any of these programs that are out there, the first question is, will you go to heaven? Let's imagine heaven's real. Would you go to heaven? And the answer is almost inevitably, yes. But why? Why is it yes? Because I'm a good person. Because I do good things. Because I take care of my family and I... I, I tried my best, and I, I gave money to that homeless guy one time, and, well, I did attend church that one day, sometimes Christmas, sometimes Easter, maybe I'll show up, trusting that that's going to be enough. It's because of their works. But let us remember the gospel, first and foremost, and let us fix our minds before we even get into our text today because we're going to be talking about work we're going to be talking about idleness and i want it to be clear for everyone here that work does not save while there's commands in here to work and to be diligent in your work it's not going to save so let's point us ourselves back to the gospel you and i are sinners idleness is not our only sin There's so many sins that we all are battling against, that we've put to death, that we've been called out of in salvation. And if you aren't saved here this morning, it's calling on you to then be saved. It's calling on you to repent from those sins and to turn to Christ. As our brother prayed earlier, we fall in line with Adam. He was our first father and he was the one who sinned. We're under the sin of Adam, right? We were born in sin. We were conceived in sin. How do we know that we are sinners? Because there's an infinite, righteous, holy God who has revealed himself through his word that we might know who he is and who we truly are. If he had not revealed himself If we had no clue of who God was, we would not even know of our own sin. But because of his law, because of his truthfulness in his word, the way he has revealed himself, we know that we are sinners. He's made it clear that we have failed to live lives that are honoring him, that are glorifying to him, that are in accordance with his law. And the punishment for that is death. But the story doesn't stop. He could have just left it right there. He could have said, sinner, die, be done. 
experience eternal punishment and that's it. But he doesn't. But why not? Because our God is not only righteous and holy and perfect in all of his ways, but he is merciful. He is steadfast. He is gracious. And he desires to save a people unto himself. But then you ask the question, well, how does he do that? How can he be both a righteous, holy God that must punish sin and be merciful? How does he live out mercy and justice? How does he live out graciousness and righteousness? How is he just and the justifier? Through Christ. He sends his son to be born of a virgin, to live this perfect, sinless life, and to die on the cross in our place, for our sakes. To take on the wrath of God for sin. To experience the most excruciating and brutal death anyone ever has ever lived, will ever live, could ever experience. He died the death we deserve. And as he died, he cries out to Telestai, It is finished. The debt has been paid. Your sins have been forgiven. And he was laid in a tomb. But because he was sinless, he was not held down by death, right? He rose from the grave on the third day and he ascended to the Father, wherein he can intercede for us. As our advocate. And why? Because works don't save. Because trusting in yourself doesn't save. Because you can't do it. In our world where we are so affixed on control. So affixed on our own ability. So affixed on our ability to do things for ourselves. How often have you had the time where someone wants to hold the door for you and you say, no, I got it. Just let it go, I can do it. Our world where we want to control every situation and Christ says, no, you can't. You can't do this. You need me, the perfect sinless one that died for you. Repent and believe in him alone. Lay aside any hope you have in yourself. Turn from your wicked ways this morning And turn to Christ who saves. Be given the new heart that comes with the new birth. A heart that desires to serve him and him alone. So as we look at work this morning, I want you to remember that Christ alone saves. And these commands when it comes to work are specifically set out, not as a means of saying, this will save but as a means of saying, this is how you respond because of what Christ has done for you already. This is how you are to respond because this is what Christ has done for you. Now what are you going to do in response? Christ died on a cross for you. Repent and believe on him because Christ alone saves So, here we are in 
Paul's second epistle to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians. We have come out of deep theological truths and instructions that are found in the first couple of chapters of the book where Paul writes about the final judgment, about this man of lawlessness, and he calls on believers to stand firm in the gospel, the gospel we just talked about, this reality of Christ's saving work on our behalf. He reiterates the reality of the gospel with the goal in mind, right? That you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be crowned on that last day, that you might be able to stand before him and be welcomed in to his kingdom. And then now he comes to the practical applications. It's classic Pauline writing. He starts with this theological truth and then he brings it home and he says so what practical here's what you need to do with it it provides an excellent lesson for those that are in this preaching ministry to think about so what we read all of this stuff and we try to take it then and say so what how do we how do we not only live in this truth but then apply this truth how do we not only love and cherish this truth and project this truth out to the people, but how do we then say, take this truth and run with it? Live in this truth. As we know, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this section of text, Paul comes back sadly to an all-familiar issue within the church in Thessalonica. and Sadly, it's an issue that we see happening in our society today. Idleness. Idleness. We see Paul addressing the same issue previously. In, or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Why? Why was this such an issue? Paul has brought it up now twice in his first letter. He even says that he taught it when he was there. Why is this being brought up so many times? Why was, why was the church in Thessalonica having such an issue with this? Why is the church today and our world today having such an issue with this? Well, there was many believers that opted not to work. It is decided they were not going to get a job and provide for themselves or their families. And instead, they were going to live off the congregation. Live off the money and the generosity of others. While we don't fully understand the reason for this, we can probably make some assumptions of what was going on. Many could have been eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. We know that in the preaching ministry of Paul, he made it clear Christ will come back. We believe that today, right? Christ will return. The second coming is imminent. It is real. The end times are here. And so we look to that and we say, okay, great. Does that mean I don't have to do anything? I'm just going to sit here and wait then. I'll wait and wait and wait until he comes. 
Well, some could have been doing that. They could have thought working seems pointless in the sight of Christ's coming. Why invest in something today that will be gone tomorrow? The second option could have been that they were following suit from Jewish and Greek views of work as a whole that saw manual labor and menial labor or hard types of labor to be lesser and pursuits of knowledge and pursuits of skills that are of the mind were higher or more importance of greater value and purpose. Or thirdly, they were just downright lazy. They just lacked a desire to work. Lord knows, I'm sure we've all struggled with that. We've woken up in the morning and we say, man, I'm just not feeling it today. I'd rather just stay home, lay in bed, sit on the couch, watch TV, do something, anything other than going to work. Life is easier when we don't have to work, right? We get to do what we want. We get to enjoy what we want. We don't have to worry about anything, really. No stress, no boss telling you what to do, nobody harping on you. If you're working in a restaurant, no one yelling at you, no one yelling your name. If you're working in an office, no one to tell you how you needed to spend your time or dealing with a computer that doesn't seem to want to work with you. It's just easier. However, Paul says it doesn't matter. There's no good excuse. Since scripture is absolutely clear, laziness and slothfulness and idleness is sinful. It is sinful. If someone has the ability to work, they should be working. As we look at our text, we're going to see five main points in response to the Thessalonian church. And I pray that as we work through these, they will stir you up to look into your own lives and look at not only your work in the workplace or in the home, but also your idle time. How are you spending the time when you aren't doing those things? How are you being fruitful for God and for his glory? Our five points this morning are going to be the command to the community, the conduct of the missionaries, the crime of the idlers, the call to the idlers, and finally the charge to the community. Let us start with verse 6, the command to the community. And he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Paul starts off this section of his letter by issuing a command. Command, it's the same word that we've seen numerous times, both in other parts of Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, where he commands, where he urges, he pleads with the person. He pleads with the community, with the church. It's not just a simple, hey, if you're, you're feeling up to it, I'd really like it if you would do this. I think this would be better for you. I think this would be best for you. It's, no, this is my command for you. Go, do it. You must. It's an urgency. There's a sense of, you must do what I'm saying. It's an order. 
Notice he doesn't even do it on his own authority as an apostle. He doesn't even look to his role in the ministry. Rather, he points to Christ as this basis for the command. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't based on Paul's ideal situation or thoughts. As we prayed and talked earlier, this word, the word of God is exactly that, his word. It's not some fantastical writings from a bunch of men. It's not some really great fiction story. No, it is the word of the living God. And so Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, pointing to the full weight of the authority that he is speaking with, meaning it wasn't meant to be taken lightly, wasn't meant to be questioned. There was no response. There was no excuse that could be made. It wasn't up for debate or for a sluggish change, but rather to be heeded and obeyed now. He commanded it today, in this very moment. It says, if he was saying, as you're reading this letter, you should be making a change in your heart and in your mind. It should be going out and applying to you now. Not down the road, not in five years, not in ten years. Not when you finally found the right job or the right situation that seems to fit you, but today, make a change. So what is, the, what is the apostle commanding the brothers to do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. To avoid them, to shun them is what the Greek kind of implies. It's to remove yourself from them. Paul is commanding the church to essentially shun or remove every idle brother or sister, every person who was walking in a sense that they could just rely on the church to take care of their needs and they didn't have to do anything. Paul was essentially commanding the church to follow what's found in Matthew 18, right? We know the all too familiar Matthew 18 of church discipline. How does the church execute discipline? Step one, they confront the sin privately. Step two, they confront him again with two to three witnesses. Step three, if the brother or sister doesn't repent, they tell the offense to the congregation and remove that individual from normal church life. In a way, shun them. And if they refuse to listen after that, if being separated from the church and normal church life isn't enough, then you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector as a person who is unsaved, as an unbeliever who is in need of the gospel. However, notice that Paul still refers to these, brothers, these individuals as brothers. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idol, idleness. So it's as if he still regarded the individual who is walking in idleness as a brother. It seems like we're not quite at that point of saying, He's an unbeliever, but we are at the point of saying he needs to be removed from the normal life of the church. Remove him from the coming and going of the church. Remove him from the fellowship of the church. Remove him from the community. And the hope that it would lead to repentance. And hope that it would bring the person about to say, I have sinned and I am in need of forgiveness. I am in need of turning back to the cross where I was purchased by the blood of Christ. 
It was a standard discipline found in the church at that time, and it's a standard discipline that should be executed today. Not just for idleness, but for all sin. Anytime there is sin, it should be brought to the person individually, then with witnesses if they don't repent, then brought before the church. Idleness. The the Greek word here that's used is meant to be more like a military sense. It's disorderly, unruly. For those that have been in the military or around the military, you know the prescription or the the rank and file that has to happen. There's certain things that need to be on the uniform. The clothing needs to look just right. When they're marching, they have to march in place in the right spot at every given time, taking the right steps at the right time. They're not just all walking haphazardly, going wherever. They're listening and following the command. They don't deviate from the rank. They don't deviate from the rule because if not... It creates chaos. It's ineffective. That's what they mean by this idleness. It's disorderly. It's unruly. It's not sticking with the church's rule, the rank and the file, the the way that Christ has called his people to respond to what he has already done for them. We'll see the same word found in verse 11. Walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, right? This idle behavior that was being lived by some of the believers in Thessalonica was not in accord with the tradition that they had received from the apostles. It wasn't in accord with how the church worked. It went against the very nature of how the church lived and survived. You had people who had given up everything to take care of one another. And then you had these believers who said, I'm not going to give up anything, but I'm also not going to do anything to support I'm good to just sit here, enjoy my time, bide my time until Christ returns. And Paul says, that's not how the church works. That's not how the church works. And he points back to the tradition. He says, not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. We see this back in chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Tradition points to this divine revelation that had been given through the apostles. It was the teaching of the apostles. It was how they showed the truth of the gospel, but also then how they lived, how they walked amongst the believers. The tradition that they had received from Paul, both orally and in writing, stated that idleness was not to be counted among those in the church. And therefore, those rejecting this teaching were in reality rejecting the very word of God because Paul had already laid it out there. The seriousness of failing to work is shown in the fact that the church discipline is to be executed in this manner. Many would say, well, what difference does it make if somebody didn't want to work? Well, it was taken obviously seriously because Paul calls the church to execute church discipline in this situation. Believers were not to tolerate idleness, but rather were to execute discipline for the sake of the church and for its reputation in the world. It wasn't wasn't okay for the church to tolerate laziness 
Because it set the example of how the church was to the world. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to consider. Many of you, I'm sure, and I I pray, are openly Christian. You're walking around in clear verbal talk about being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be happening because you should be evangelizing, which means that if you're evangelizing, you're telling people, I believe this, right? Now the question becomes is, do you walk that way? Can anyone look at you and say, wow, those Christians look, I mean, lazy. They say a lot of nice stuff, maybe even mean stuff sometimes, but man, they're not that great. They're kind of not cool. They're not very nice. They don't seem to be well kept or well put together. We don't do this out of a sake for our own glory or our own benefit, but for the sake of the church. Because what Paul says here is very clear that this is the tradition you receive from us. And you should walk in it because it's how you want to be viewed within the church, but also viewed to the outside world. We want the world to see what Christian life looks like. Christian life is different than everything else. As we talked about earlier, you have two ways of salvation, right? You have work, which doesn't save, so you'll never make it there. Or you have the grace of Jesus Christ. You have two ways. There's, you're either for Christ or you are against him. You're either for the gospel or you are against the gospel. So if you're for the gospel, you live as if you are for the gospel. And that's what Paul is telling the believers here. If you are for the gospel, if you are for Christ, act like it. Walk like it. Be it. Do it. So now we move into our our second section here. We saw the first command to the church, and now we look at the conduct of the missionaries Turn your attention to verses 7 through 10 here. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, We would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul points the believers back to the reality of what they experienced firsthand in the lives of the apostles and and the apostle and his companions, Silas and Timothy. He said, remember how we lived among you. Imitate us. As Paul has said previously, imitate us as we imitate Christ. I'm imitating Christ, so follow me in the way that I follow him. And so he says, see how I worked. Avoided idleness. Notice what he points to there. He gives us these ways in which he exemplified that life that the believers were to imitate when it came to their vocation and their work. He doesn't doesn't just say, do what I say, but he says, do what I do. Do what I do today, what I did when I was with you. He says, remember, we were not idle when we were with you. 
These were active men. They were active believers. They were not men that were sitting around just to be waited on and taken care of, expecting that. No, they said, look at what we did. We worked when we were amongst you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. They didn't even take from believers, but rather ensured that there was a payment made for what they took. They had every reason. He even says it here. They had every reason to take as they saw fit. There were laborers for Christ. They could have just gone into the church and said, I'm here to bring you the gospel. Now that you believe, you must take care of me. Because I'm sharing truth with you. Because I'm building you up. And that was work in and of itself. And he says, you could have just said, give me food. Give me shelter. Hey, my, my clothes. I need something new. I need this or that. I need to ride over here. So can somebody let, borrow, let me borrow a donkey? He could have done whatever. But he doesn't. Rather, he toils for the money to buy what he needed. That phrase, eat bread, refers metaphorically to all the sustenance that he needed. It wasn't just the bread itself, but housing. It wasn't just the bread itself, but clothing. Things to write with. Luke chapter 14 and verse 15, it says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's a, a metaphorical sense of being in the presence of God. It's the Eat bread doesn't always just mean physically eating bread. Genesis chapter 3 verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam didn't just eat bread. But he had to work to be provided for now. He had to work to be taken care of, to take care of his family, and to take care of himself. According to Acts chapter 17, verse 7, Paul, Silas, and Timothy stayed with Jason during their time in Thessalonica. However, even when they were there, they didn't eat at his expense. But they paid their own way. They toiled and labored both day and night. But why not? Why, why? They could have just done that. They could have just said, I would rather work on the gospel. I'd rather work on preaching truth. And they said that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul mentioned this back in actually 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 9 he said, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul reminds the believers in Thessalonica that they had every right to receive support. While they were in this preaching ministry. It was not because they didn't have the right, but to give them an example to imitate. We know Paul received support numerous times in his ministry. Even in Thessalonica, he received gifts from the church in Philippi. He also received support from, while ministering in Corinth from other churches. We also know that Paul makes it clear in the scriptures that he had every right because he says in Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share all things with one who teaches. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I'm going to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 here for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who were proclaimed the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul had every right, but they did not take it. They worked and why? So that there would be an example to imitate, both for the church in Thessalonica and for everyone here this morning, for every believer throughout the land. He wanted to give a model. It's almost as if he saw this stumbling block that it could create if he said, I'm not going to work and I'm just going to live off of the church's care and provision for me. No, he said, I'd rather not be a stumbling block to any believer. I want to be an example that they might live by. And finally, Paul closes out this section here of example by reminding the believers in Thessalonica of what he had previously commanded them. He points back and he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. As I mentioned previously, he's talked about this numerous times, twice in 1 Thessalonians, now here in 2 Thessalonians, and he says here that he had verbalized it. He points back and he says, this is not something new or different. I'm not writing some new letter to you that you didn't know. I told you numerous times. You have no excuse at this point. I, I think that's why he's so clear about the church discipline, because he's like, seriously, if you're still struggling with this, then you need to be disciplined. You haven't obviously been held under discipline. You need to turn. Because I've told you, I've written to you, I've brought it before the church. What more can I do? And what is the reminder he tells them? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He gave this command in Thessalonica. He's been clear here and he says, if you're not going to work, don't eat. like he says if someone is hungry enough trust me they'll get to work if they're hungry enough they'll they'll put in the time because they need to eat they need to have sustenance of some sort 
So in essence, this means that if you can work, then work. If you're too lazy to work, then you should experience the hunger and the struggle that comes with it. Let the consequences of this sin of idleness grasp onto the person. Let the hunger pains literally to take over to the point where they turn and they change. Paul is clear here that he is only talking to those who are not willing to work, not willing to work. Doesn't mean that those who are suffering from ailments or those that are having other issues that prevent them from, work, from working should not be cared for, but those that are not willing to work, let them suffer. Let them not eat. It's like he's saying it's time to put in work here. The church has been called to serve the poor and those in need of support. And so Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. Christ makes it a, a known thing that he is expecting that we will give to the poor. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So there's a sense in which we are to care for the poor, but... They're not willing to work. Let them not eat. Sadly, in our lives of affluence here in the West, which we are certainly thankful for, I am not by any means neglecting the reality of how thankful we should be for the way that we have been provided for, the way that the Lord has blessed us. But we've come to expect a certain standard. We've come to think, I don't know if I really want to do that kind of work or put in that kind of effort. Cleaning toilets? That's eh, a little below my, my knowledge and my skill set. But he says, if you don't want to work, you're unwilling to work, don't eat. The scriptures have made it clear that if you're capable and you choose not to for the desire of your own sensibilities or relaxation and ease while living off of others, then you're to not be supported. And it's not being harsh. That's the thing. He's, he doesn't even say this as if he's being harsh at anybody. He's just being honest. It's not being mean or unkind. It's saying, I care about your soul so much that I'm willing to let you starve so that you'll come to repentance and faith. I'm willing to let you suffer in some way so that you'll turn from your sin and turn back to the gospel. It's acknowledging the God-given ability that you have to do. Whether that's in the home, whether that's in the workforce, whether that's serving one another in the church, there's, there's a sense of you have the ability, so do it. We come to our third point now, the crime of idlers. 
Look at, with, uh, look at verse 11 with me here. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. We see Paul now reaffirm what he knows to be true in the life of the church in Thessalonica. He states, for we hear. It is clear that based on the reminders in his first epistle that he's giving clear commands and somehow this isn't clicking. It's not sticking with the church. How he keeps hearing about it, who knows? He's getting reports from somebody. But he says, this isn't okay. It's an ongoing issue, so we must address it. He says the idlers were not busy at work, but busy bodies. It's the same play on words that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when we were back there. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, Besides that, they learned to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. He was talking about widows. And here, Paul uses those same Greek word play, ergazomai, and peri, ergazomenos, busy, not busy, but busy bodies, right? It's this play on words. He takes the same word, busy, and he just adds body to it, and he says, you're busy bodies. You're pretending to do a lot, but really nothing's getting done. You're acting like you're doing stuff, but really nothing's happening. There's no fruit to what you're doing. They didn't just refuse to work, but then use their idle time to interfere. They were getting caught up in things. They were busy bodies, right? That's, that's how we understand the term busybody. It's a person who's just kind of putzing around and getting involved in areas that they shouldn't and getting meddling into people's lives and getting intertwined with every little gossip and every little scandal and every little issue. They're caught up in gossip and interference in other people's lives. These individuals who would not work were just downright irritating, really. Creating challenges for the church creating disunity within the church, gossiping, slandering, accusing, propagating accusation. They're creating problems within the church to create separation and division, burdening those in the church who did not, who were working, which created anger and frustration. And so Paul says, Sadly, that he hears that there's these people who would not work, but were busy bodies, that were doing these sinful things. This was that crime of the idlers. And now let's look at the command that comes to them. Verse 12, he says, Now such persons we command and encourage in in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul turns now to the idlers. And for any of you that may hear these words and feel a little prick of truth, hear what Paul says. He says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Calls directly on these individuals and says, We command and encourage you. It's not just a command, but an encouragement. He's pointing back to that unity that he said when he said, in the Lord Jesus Christ as brothers. He says, I'm commanding, but I'm also encouraging you. It's an expectation, but 
one that is given in love and encouragement and, and building up. And what is that command? He says, do their work quietly and to live their own, or to make their own living, to earn their own living. Stop meddling. Stop getting involved in areas you shouldn't be involved in. Stop causing frustrations and confusions and accusations and disunity. But rather, get your affairs in order. Essentially, man up. Do something. Tend to your own life. Discontinue in this life of idleness and sin, but not just discontinue it, but turn from it. Turn to a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Turn to a life that brings Him glory. And you ask, what is that? And He says it right there, that you work quietly and earn your own living. That you're a good and diligent worker. That you're one that tends to your own needs. That you're one that doesn't put a burden on anybody else, but just takes care of yourself. And then through that is able to take care of others who are truly in need. And we come here now to these final three verses, the charge to the community. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul closes out this section by encouraging the believers of the church. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul understood the very frustration and discouragement that would come from seeing these other, others essentially abusing the system. Which could lead to a sense of indifference or a sense of disdain for those who are living idly. I'm sure all of you have had that experience when you see someone who claims to be in need, but then seems to be living much more abundantly than you are. And you think to yourself, well, how is this working? You feel this little sense of frustration. And it's like Paul sees that frustration. He sees that anger that starts to build up and he says, but do not grow weary in doing good. Keep pressing on. Keep working Paul wanted to encourage these believers to stay faithful in doing what is right and not ignore the call upon their lives to serve and care for those who are truly in need. Psalm 37, 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous, the righteous, which is what we should be called upon, we should be called righteous if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is generous and gives. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his enemy, or sorry, he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do not grow weary in doing good, brothers and sisters. 
Do not grow weary in doing good because you will be rewarded on the last day. And we don't do this for our own reward. That's why he says right here in Luke, right? Don't invite your rich relatives that they might then invite you back. No, he says, invite those that are in need. Do the thing that can't be repaid. And then Christ, I love this, because then Christ goes on to die on a cross. He does the thing that can't be repaid. Hence why work doesn't, doesn't save, right? Because he says, I'm going to give you something that can't be repaid. I'm going to give you something that you can never pay me back for. You can never earn it. I don't care how much good work. You could live the almost, almost perfect life. You'd never be perfect, right? Because only Christ was. But you could live the almost perfect life with just one sin. And it still would never pay back the death that he received on the cross for you. Paul continues, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Paul has dealt with these idle individuals multiple times. He's spoken to them, he's written to them, and now this is his third time, and he says, If anyone disobeys this command that's been clearly given, then he's living in sinful disobedience and has no reason to say that he was unaware. He has no reason to not be punished at this point. Paul says that if anyone does so, the church is to take note of that individual and have nothing to do with them. It's, if, it's as if he, somebody was to then write down their name and say, okay, here's my list of people I don't talk to anymore. Take note of that person, have nothing to do with them. He uses a strong double compound in the Greek that means not to mix with, to keep company with. It's cre create the separation. It's don't be intimate with them. You see them on the street? Hey, that's it. We're no, longer, we're no longer friends. You don't get to then come to me and say, share your intimate struggles with me. Let's pray for one another. No, you're out now. You're pushed. You've been pushed out of the church. And why? Why does he do that? That they may be ashamed. Why remove them from fellowship? Why remove them from normal life of the church? Because it was to put them to shame or to make them be ashamed. The Greek word used here for ashamed means to, to invert or to turn in on oneself. It's not shame for shame's sake. It's not just shaming them so that they feel horrible about themselves but it's so that then they'll turn inwardly and they'll ask the question, why am I here? Why am I in this situation right now? Why, how have I gotten here? And they'll look inwardly. And as they look inwardly, Lord willing, they'll see their error. They'll see the ways in which they have failed and they'll come back in repentance and, and desire to be out of this isolation they would turn inward and then say, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. And they would go to the church. Church, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. Accept me back. Help me. The hope is that by being ashamed, they would be led to repentance and then restoration. The desire is never that this is the end. When someone is put out of the church or 
sent out because of an ongoing sin that's not addressed, it's never an end in and of itself. The desire is never to just push somebody out and say, well, you're lost, good luck. Sorry, the works aren't going to save you, so I guess you're going to hell. By no means is the desire that they would be restored, that they'd be brought back into truth, that they would repent and turn back to the Christ, the one who purchased them. So frequently we hear shame and being ashamed and we think of just this awful feeling and it is an awful feeling. I'm sure many of us in our lives at some point have felt ashamed about something. We felt guilty. That's not a good feeling. But it's not the end. Both in this situation and if you're not a believer here today, it's not the end. Feeling guilt for your sin is not the end. There is a means of restoration. That guilt, that guilt is a beautiful gift because it's calling on you to then repent and believe so you might be restored to the God who sent his son to die for you. Finishing up in verse 15 here, he says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The sinning believer was to be considered as an was not to be considered as an unbeliever or regarded as an enemy, which is that final progression we talked about in Matthew 18. It's not been completely put out where he's been essentially excommunicated or called a tax collector and Gentile, but rather he's still to be considered a brother, just a brother that's living in sin and needs to be called to the gospel. needs to be pushed out from the church, from the normal fellowship, taken away from the Lord's table, those things to say, you're not walking rightly. As we saw Paul do previously in the text, we should not be looking to bring down a brother, but command with encouragement. It's not simply discipline for discipline's sake, but discipline out of true love and care for the brother. As we close this morning, I'd like to just leave you with a few final thoughts or a few questions of the so what, as we talked about earlier, right? The question of always, and? So what? I'm sure many of you are thinking, I'm good. I got my job. I work. I do good there and everything's fine. So this isn't for me. Cool. I can move on. Well, as we see throughout the scriptures, idleness is sinful. So one question I hope that comes to mind is, does this mean we can never have idle time? Does this mean we should never take time and rest? I invite you to consider a few things. As humans, we were created in such a way that we need rest. It's true. We can't work 24-7, 365. Eventually our bodies will just shut down. So we do need rest. We require sleep. Does that mean then that you should just be working from sunup till sundown and only stopping for the sleep and that's it? No. Idle time is not always a bad thing. Having time to rest and recoup outside of bed is a good thing sometimes. It's an important thing. But I invite you to consider how that time is being used for God's glory. When you have downtime, is it used mindlessly scrolling on your phone? 
mindlessly flipping the channels on the TV. I know I can be guilty of that. I get home after a long day of work, and some days are rough. And you sit down on the couch and you think, I'm not moving from this spot. I'm like, babe, if you can get up and get me a soda or something, I'm sitting right here and I'm not moving. But is that a fruitful way to use that time? Does that truly rest? When you have downtime, is it filled with gossip and meddling and issues that are not really yours to meddle in? I think a lot about the reality of social media and it's created this environment where one, everyone is a celebrity, which at some point just means no one's a celebrity, right? But everyone's a celebrity in their own way because they have these followers that like their posts and talk about them and respond to them. And, you know, everybody's their own like little king and queen. So we have that. But then it's also just a way that so much filth continuously is just being stirred up. It's continuously being stirred up. I'm not saying that you have to go off and delete your Facebook and your Instagram and whatever other social media, Twitter, that's still a thing, so Twitter, um, other social media things that people use. I don't mean to sound ignorant on this, I just don't use social media, so it's, <laughs> it's a personal preference. But what, I'm not saying you have to go off and delete that stuff, but how are you using it? How are you using it for God's glory and not for your mindless distraction? for gossip and slander and propagating untruths or challenges, creating division and strife rather than desiring truly that God may be glorified in the use of it. When you have downtime, is it filled with things that are not glorifying to God? Do you find that you end up using the times in truly unfruitful ways, possibly even sinful ways? I invite you to consider how you can use that time more wisely. Read a verse or two. You have five or ten minutes? Wonderful. That's enough time to, for some of the books of the Bible, read the whole thing. But at least read a verse or two. Meditate on it. Think on it. Spend time with family. Encouraging one another. How often do we find ourselves sitting at the table with our family and friends and pulling out our phone and just scrolling? Answering to text messages, talking on the phone to somebody else, when we're right face-to-face with somebody else. But yet we can't seem to even focus our energy for five seconds on that other person before we need to pull out our phone and check it. Pray. You have five seconds, you have enough time for a prayer. You have five minutes, well, that's even better. And finally... You could actually rest. Rather than throwing on the TV for 10 episodes of your favorite show, actually rest. If you're tired, rest. Long day at work, rest. Do something that actually gives you a sense of rest. It's a crazy thing to think about that we think resting is mindlessly searching or looking at a screen, but, you know, just a few hundred years ago, if you were tired, you laid down. You rested. Try resting. Sit in quiet for a few minutes. Allow the body and the mind to calm down, to ease off of the workday. Rest. 
Now, for those of you in the work world, you ask, how should we view what we've just read in light of our work today? In this reality, how do we see work? While sadly we saw that Paul addressed this issue multiple times here, we find that people still fell back into this belief of the Greeks and the Jews with the kind of sacred secular divide, right? This belief that some things were better and others were not as good. Life of contemplation and relaxation was better than a life of work. That was one of the things that plagued the, the Catholic Church right before the Protestant Reformation, right? And that's part of the reason that Luther went and nailed those 95 theses is because he looked at the monastery, he looked at the monks that were there, and he said, look at the life of lap and luxury that they're living in. They're not living according to the word. They're not living according to these truths. It was one of the many errors that was pointed out in the medieval church. And that's why so many pursued monastery or convent life. Because it was something of stature to say, oh, I I live at the monastery. Your family would say, oh, if I can get a few of the kids over to the monastery or the convent, all the better for me. And then they would be able to walk around and say, oh, look at my son. He's, He's the monk over there. Oh, look at my daughter. She's, the, she's in the convent, the nun over there. But it was because of the reformers, to include the men like Luther and Calvin, that the newly established Protestant churches began to view work in light of God's word and taught that all work can be understood as a calling from God and should be used for his glory by being faithful in every vocation. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to do it to the glory of God. It's like they took Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's as if he looks at it and he says, Do everything as if I'm doing it for the Lord. Well, that means if I'm hammering nails, I should do it as if I'm doing it for the Lord. If I'm typing on a keyboard, I'm doing it as if I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm going to be diligent in my work. I'm going to be prudent in my work. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to set that example so that the world sees me and they say, those Christians know how to work. Did you know that Protestant work ethic is an actual thing? That was one of the things that the Protestants were known by was their work ethic. That was what Christians were known by, was that they were diligent workers. They were good workers. They were the kind of people that you wanted in your office. They were the kind of people that they wanted to be around because they were diligent. They were God-fearing. They were people that didn't just do something because they were told to do it. They did it because they were doing it for the Lord. And finally, how do we address a brother or sister we see struggling in this manner or really any manner? Well, we follow Matthew 18 and we do it in love. In love with the desire for the fellow believer to repent and to turn to Christ where they were purchased by the blood of our risen Savior and King. We so frequently look at sin and think either that's not my problem or we think, well, let's throw judgment at them. That's our two options, right? Not my problem. I'm not going to look. If I just close my eyes, maybe it won't be my problem ever. Or they say, let's sling mud. Let's sling accusations. Let's throw all kinds of shame their way so that then... They feel what? 
like we're mean. Correction and love for the desire of the individual soul. That's our goal. We don't correct simply because it puts us on a little higher pedestal or on the hill looking down on them. But no, we do it because we desire the individual soul to be saved. So if you don't feel that way this morning, you must ask the question of yourself. How do I feel about my brothers and sisters in Christ that I am responding out of coldness, out of judgment, rather than loving them? If you're unable or unwilling to correct and love, if you're more willing to judge them or hurt them, cause them hardship and pain, rather than correcting them in love, the question has to be asked, how do you really feel them? Do you not see the church as the bride of Christ? For those newly married and for us that have been married for a few years now, you know that love that you have for your, your spouse. And if anyone, anyone attacked your spouse, how quickly you would step up in their defense. How quickly you would stand for them. And yet, so quickly we're willing to sling mud at the bride of Christ. The Christ that we've married as well, that we're a part of that bride, right? How quickly we are to do that. And so I invite you to consider that reality that you need to do this in love because you love Christ. If you love Christ, you love his bride. And anybody who says that they love Christ but not the church... I hate to say it, but I have to ask, do you really love Christ? You can't love Christ and not love his bride. Finally, I'd like you to consider the reality that we are in end times. Like Paul, I'll join in in saying we are in the end times. Like John. Like all of the faithful men throughout history who have preached the gospel of grace we are in the end times. We are in these times before our Savior returns. And with that in mind, I invite you to consider how do you want to be found when he returns? It's not to create some complex thought within yourself or to ask any like really hardship. It just says our time's limited. So what are we going to do with it? How can we use utilize it for God's glory? Our time is short here on this earth. How can we maximize it for the good and the advancement of God's kingdom? For I remind you from Matthew chapter 24, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's clear that we don't know the day or the hour. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelations chapter 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. So I invite you to ask the question, how do I want to look back on my time in this world? And when I stand before the risen king, how will I desire to have seen that time used? Friends, I I want to just take a moment to remind you, though, that work will not save you. No matter how diligent you are, it will not save. It pains me to think of the reality that there are people here that are trusting in themselves. It truly hurts my heart and soul to know that there will be people that put their faith in themselves alone thinking that they made it, and in the end will stand before a God of wrath, a God who will execute his judgment, his righteous judgment, not because he doesn't have any right. It's his right to execute justice. And they will spend eternity in hell. So friends, I invite you, if you haven't repented and believed on Christ, Now is the time. As we just read, you do not know the time of the Master's return. You do not know when the Son of God will return. And everything will be burned up. And everything will be exposed. Repent and believe today upon Christ and Christ alone. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to the cross where you were purchased with the most precious blood as a propitiation for your sin, as a means of paying the debt that you owe. Calvin in Harmony of the Evangelists, in talking about work, said, we know that people were created for the express purpose of being employed in labor of various kinds. And that no sacrifice is more pleasing to God than when every person applies diligently to his or her own calling and endeavors to live in such a manner as to contribute to the general advantage. Every person has an express purpose of being employed in a labor of some kind. And there's nothing, there's no sacrifice that is more pleasing to God. Not as a means of salvation again, but there's no sacrifice pleasing to God more so than when the person just does their work diligently, than when they honor God in their everyday life, when they go about their day-to-day business and they do it well, when they do it well, when they live out what they've learned on Sundays, what they learn in their Bible, in their own reading, in their own worship, what they learn through other sermons, all those things, the, what they learn in prayer as they come before the Father and sins exposed, Nothing is more precious than living that out day to day.